Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings. This is Abayomi Hazikawe, and welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Hazikawe. Today is uh, January 2nd, uh, Sunday, 2022. This is our second program uh, for the year of uh, 2022. And uh, we have um, an action-filled uh, program uh, set up uh, for you uh, today. And, of course, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, some of the major literary icons uh, within uh, African-American life uh, over the last uh, century. Uh, we're going to look at uh, Langston Hughes and James Baldwin uh, with interviews, poetry, and discussions on their contributions to the struggle for liberation and social justice. Finally, we're going to uh, review some of the most important issues uh, impacting uh, Africa uh, today. If people would like to read the Pan-African Newswire, the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then, it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, magazines, uh, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. And if you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. Right now, we want to take our musical interlude. Uh, we'll be back later with more of our program for this week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Ya 
Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to uh, the Patent African Journal, this special uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for today, uh, which is Sunday, uh, January 2nd, uh, 20, broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit, and that was uh, the African Party Collection, and uh, featured music from various uh, geopolitical regions around the continent, uh, Guinea, Congo, uh, Zimbabwe, Cote d'Ivoire, South Africa, Nigeria, and also Angola. The last track we just heard, Mulemba, Zangola, Bongo, Angola. And uh, we're here today, uh, our second program uh, for uh, the year. Uh, Of course, uh, yesterday being uh, New Year's Day, and uh, we're going to be here uh, throughout the year uh, bringing you some of the most advanced uh, information and cultural presentations uh, involving African people uh, throughout uh, the entire globe. And uh, if you'd like to uh, have access to today's program, uh, the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for uh, Sunday, uh, January 2nd, 2022, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash pan-African channel. And uh, right now we want to move over to uh, the legendary uh, poet, playwright, novelist, composer, and public intellectual, Langston Hughes. And uh, this is an interview uh, with uh, Langston Hughes from 1963. Very revealing uh, in terms of uh, his history and also his perceptions and perspectives on what was happening in the United States at that particular time period. Let's listen in. This is From the Vault, the Pacifica Radio Archives program that brings our history out of the vault and onto the radio. A young Pacifica radio producer named Eve Corey sat down with Langston Hughes in the studios of WBAI Station in New York City in 1963 and had a lovely conversation with the esteemed author. There's a photo of their encounter on the front page of the Archives website at PacificaRadioArchives.org. Miss Corey heard that we had preserved the recording as part of our Preservation and Access project and called the Archives, the 1-800 number, to request a copy. Last December, we sent her a copy with our compliments in time for the holidays. Here is her message after hearing the interview for the first time in over 44 years. Hello, Brian DeShazer. This is Eve Corey. I received the CDs 
uh, of my interview with Langston Hughes, and it came just on Christmas Eve, and it was the, the best present that anyone could ever get. I just my hands were shaking when I opened the envelope, and um, the minute I I heard. Mr. Hughes' voice, it took me right back to that WBAI studio and to that entire experience, and I recalled where I was nervous and didn't know what to say, and and the fact that he was just on top of everything, ready to fill in in, in an instant when I faltered. But generally, for a, a new interviewer, I didn't do too badly. <laughs> At any rate, I thank you most kindly. It was a gift beyond gifts. And now, here's Eve Corey's 1963 interview with one of the most influential writers of the 20th century, Mr. Langston Hughes. We kind of got you up this morning, or this afternoon, it's 4 o'clock, and you say that you first get up at 4. Well, I work uh, at night, you see, and so sometimes I don't start writing until 12 or 1 o'clock because they're not much use trying to do anything that requires a great little concentration in New York in the daytime or in the early evening. Especially when carpenters come in. What did you, you just told me? A, oh, a yes, bit. my windows were being fixed. But um, that's only a minor interruption. One has usually many interruptions during the day. The phone rings 40 times. Strangers come by, relatives you haven't seen in 10 years. They just drop in. Drop in time. <laughs> and you can't say no. So the result is that when peace and quiet settles down, it's usually around midnight, you see. Then I may try to, or usually do try to do some serious writing. Hmm. Sort of the quiet time for you. And yeah. then you spend the rest of the day doing what? When, you're, when you have leisure time to... Move? Oh, I don't seem to have too much, really. When I wake up, uh, which uh, is usually two or three or sometimes even four o'clock, depending on whether I work through daylight or not, uh, I read the mail. And the mail is, oh, maybe sometimes a two- or three-hour uh, task if one answers some of the letters immediately mm. because there's a rather heavy mail. And now that I'm writing for the New York Post, I get quite a deal of fan mail. And what kind of letters do you get? On the whole, very cordial and usually nice letters commenting on some aspect with which the writer agrees. But there's always a, a few letters of disagreement and sometimes violent disagreement. And once in a while from people who uh, are not very pro-civil rights, uh, one gets angry and unsigned letters, you know, uh, Ku Klux Klan type of letters. Really? Yeah. Are these postmarked New York? or? Uh, most of them are. Most of them seem to be Brooklyn. <laughs> well, what do they disagree with? I mean, uh, I'm sure it's not your prose. Well, they disagree <laughs> with um, uh, decent housing for Negroes, for example. Uh, let Negroes stay in Harlem, or why should they live all over New York? They got Harlem. And you live in Harlem yourself. I live in Harlem, which I like very much. And, mm. and I stay there because I like it, but on the other hand, I would hate to be ghettoized against my will. And, and uh, uh, New York is not a... A ghetto, the colored people in New York do live more or less all over the city now, you see. Mm. So Harlem is no longer a place where you have to live if you don't want to, if you're colored. But I happen to like it very much. It's a very lively community, and so I live there. But many of my friends live in Park West Village in the 80s or down in the village mm. or in Brooklyn or in the Bronx, you see. And um, 
Uh, there is, of course, housing difficulties still for colored people, but not any anywhere near what they used to be. Mm-hmm. You uh, you originally came from Joplin, Missouri. Did you move directly to Harlem? Oh or? no, I was just born in Joplin. I don't oh, even, I, see. I don't even remember it. <laughs> I've lived so many places since then. Well, and you're you're a native New Yorker almost. Well, I've been here more or less off and on for at least twenty five years. But you would say you're, you're home. Uh, oh yes, New York is my home. Worked as a seaman. And you went to West Africa and Europe, uh, which sounds quite fascinating, especially the West Mm, Africa part. Yeah, I had a wonderful series of trips and uh, enjoyed them very much. And sometimes I wish I were steaming again. (laughs) You get to travel. You uh, on on freight boats. I've never worked on passenger ships, but on freight boats they go rather leisurely, you know. They stay in odd ports to which one would not otherwise be likely to. Visit, and Where? sometimes they stay Where? for eight or ten days. Oh, uh, ports like Burutu up the Niger River, and Boma up the uh, Congo River on this African trip, you know. When was this? I mean, what, uh, well, this was way back in 1925, I believe. Quiet time. Quite a time ago, yeah. Mm-hmm. And and quiet, not quite what uh, West Africa is today. Well, no, I've been back several times, you know. In fact, I was in Africa twice, uh last year mm-hmm. in Nigeria, in uh, Ghana, in Uganda. And it is a very wonderful and interesting continent now with a great deal of uh, advancement being achieved by the newly liberated nations. Mm-hmm. Is that where you uh, edited the poems from Black Africa? Well, I collected a great many uh, poems and short stories from Africa. have been doing so over a period now of, of six or eight years and uh, brought out an anthology called An African Treasury of Poetry and Prose a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And now, this May, my collection of African poetry is coming out called Poems from Black Africa. This was the one you edited? Yes, I yeah. edited it, mm-hmm. and it contains the major poets writing in English and the major poets writing in French, but uh, translation difficulties are they are not insurmountable, but they take a lot of doing, and so the French poets are not as well represented as those from Nigeria and Ghana and the other English-speaking uh, African mm-hmm. countries. What about, uh, are there any uh, talents, shall we say, uh, poets, African poets, who write in uh, some of the various African languages? Yes, there are. And some of the poets are bilingual or even trilingual. Mm. I mean, for example, in Nigeria, most uh, People speak one of the native languages, Yoruba or Igbo, mm. and some of the writers write in Yoruba, and uh, most of them are educated in uh, English schools, you see, or I mean English uh, language schools. And English is the sort of lingua franca between the tribal peoples anyway. I mean, the Igbos and the Yorubas cannot understand one another except when they talk in English. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it is the common language. It's the language of the newspapers of Nigeria and of Ghana. And so most of the literary people use English and sometimes they write in their own native tongues as well. How is the translation problem there, I mean, as far as putting the native dialect into English? Well, it's not great. There, there are so many people who speak both lang- both tongues, you see. Does it kind of lose in the translation? Though? Well, now, of course, I can't tell. Not, you not, don't know any of the... don't know the dialect. African languages, no. Mm-hmm. I see that uh, you have a number of books for children. 
on the market and uh, a book of jazz, first book of jazz. Uh, yes, I think that's perhaps the only history of jazz for children that's been written. There's been many excellent jazz books for adults, but I know of none for young mm-hmm. people. Nor do I, come to think of it. Also, first book of rhythms, which... Uh, do you uh, have these illustrated? Yes, or? they are illustrated, mm-hmm. and they're part of the uh, Franklin Watts first book series, a series designed to introduce young people, children, to subjects when they begin to be interested in them. Mm-hmm. There's some quite wonderful books, first book of stones, the first book of archaeology, and so on. And uh, I have written, so far, five books in that series. What, uh, what started you on books for children? Well, also, I was I was asked to uh, mm-hmm. if I would consider writing those particular books. And Somehow it it, uh, it seems that it would be natural. Uh, children, I think, would very much like to read the simple stories. They're, they're, there's a certain warmth about them that would appeal to children. Yes, as well a lot of the uh, high school youngsters seemingly are acquainted with my simple character. Just been published, I believe, something in common. Yes, which is a uh, selection of stories. Well, it's um, derived from two previous collections of short stories of mine and includes 11 new ones that have never been in book form before. The simple stories have been. Oh, yes, simple stories have been in book form, Mm -hmm. but uh, none of the simple stories are here. These are the more or less straight uh, short stories that I've written over the years, and it includes um, one of my stories, which has been anthologized a great many times, uh, perhaps is my best-known short story. It's called A Good Job Gone. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds like uh, something I'd like to hear. Would you <laughs> like to give us a little bit of that? No, I, <laughs> that one is a little bit too long, I think, to read here. Um, it was originally published in Esquire years ago, but um, I would prefer uh, reading a, a shorter one uh, today, if I might. Can I read it now? Yes, sure. Go right ahead. All right. The <laughs> first story in the book is called... Thank you, ma'am. She was a large woman with a large purse that had everything in it but a hammer and nails. It had a long strap, and she carried it slung across her shoulder. It was about 11 o'clock at night, dark, and she was walking alone when a boy ran up behind her and tried to snatch her purse. The strap broke with the single sudden tugs the boy gave it from behind, but the boy's weight and the weight of the purse combined caused him to lose his balance. Instead of taking off full blast as he had hoped, the boy fell on his back on the sidewalk and his legs flew up. The large woman simply turned around and kicked him right square in his blue-jeaned sitter. Then she reached down, picked the boy up by his shirt front, and shook him until his teeth rattled. After that, the woman said, Pick up my pocketbook, boy, and give it here. She held him tightly, but she bent down enough to permit him to stoop and pick up her purse. Then she said, Now ain't you ashamed of yourself? Firmly gripped by his shirt front, the boy said, Yes, am The woman said, What did you want to do it for? The boy said, I didn't aim to. She said, You a lie. By that time, two or three people passed, stopped, turned around on the street to look, and some stood watching. If I turn you loose, will you run? asked the woman. Yes, said the boy. Then I won't turn you loose, said the woman. She did not release him. Lady, I'm sorry, whispered the boy. Uh-huh. Your face is dirty. I could have got 
got a great mind to wash your face. Ain't you got nobody home, boy, to tell you to wash your face? No'm, said the boy. Then it will get washed this evening, said the large woman, starting up the street, dragging the frightened boy behind her. He looked as if he were fourteen or fifteen, frail and willow wild in tennis shoes and blue jeans. The woman said, You ought to be my son. I would teach you right from wrong. Least I can do right now is to wash your face. Are you hungry? Nome, said the being dragged boy. I just want you to turn me loose. Was I bothering you when I turned that corner? asked the woman. Nome. But you put yourself in contact with me, said the woman. If you think that that contact is not going to last a while, you got another thought coming. When I get through with you, sir, you are going to remember Mrs. Luella Bates Washington Jones. Sweat popped out on the boy's face and he began to struggle. Mrs. Jones stopped, jerked him around in front of her, put a half Nelson around his neck and continued to drag him up the street. When she got to her door, she dragged the boy inside, down a hall and into a large kitchenette furnished room at the rear of the house. She switched on the light and left the door open. The boy could hear other roomers laughing and talking in the large house. Some of their doors were open too, so he knew that he and the woman were not alone. The woman still had him by the neck in the middle of her room. She said, What's your name? Roger, answered the boy. Then, Roger, you go to that sink and wash your face, said the woman, whereupon she turned him loose at last. Roger looked at the door, looked at the woman, looked at the door, and went to the sink. Let the water run until it gets warm, she said. Here's a clean towel. You going to take me to jail, asked the boy, bending over the sink. Not with that face. I would not take you nowhere, said the woman. Here I am trying to get home to cook me a bite to eat, and you snatch my pocketbook. Maybe you ain't been to your supper either, late as it is, have you? There's nobody home in my house, said the boy. Then we'll eat, said the woman. I believe you're hungry, or been hungry, to try to snatch my pocketbook. I want a pair of blue suede shoes, said the boy. Well, you didn't have to snatch my pocketbook to get some blue suede shoes, said Mrs. Luella Bates Washington Jones. You could have asked me. Ma'am, the water dripping from his face, the boy looked at her. There was a long pause, a very long pause. After he had dried his face and not knowing what else to do, dried it again, the boy turned around, wondering what next. The door was open. He could make a dash for it down the hall. He could run, 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 run. The woman was sitting on the daybed. After a while, she said, I were young once, and I wanted things I could not get. There was another long pause. The boy's mouth opened. Then he frowned, not knowing he frowned. The woman said, Uh-huh. You thought I was going to say, But, didn't you? You thought I was going to say, But I didn't snatch people's pocketbooks. Well... I wasn't going to say that. Pause. Silence. I have done things, too, which I would not tell you, son. Neither tell God if he didn't already know. Everybody's got something in common. So you sit on a while while I go and fix us something to eat. You might run that comb through your hair so you'll look presentable. 
In another corner of the room, behind the screen, was a gas plate and an ice box. Mrs. Jones got up and went behind the screen. The woman did not watch the boy to see if he was going to run now, nor did she watch her purse, which he left behind her on the daybed. But the boy took care to sit on the far side of the room, away from the purse, where he thought she could easily see him out of the corner of her eye if she wanted to. He did not trust the woman not to trust him, and he did not want to be mistrusted now. Do you need somebody to go to the store, asked the boy, maybe to get some milk or something? I don't believe I do, said the woman, unless you just want sweet milk yourself. I was going to make cocoa out of this canned milk I got here. That will be fine, said the boy. She heated some lima beans and ham she had in the icebox, made the cocoa, and set the table. The woman did not ask the boy anything about where he lived or his folks or anything else that would embarrass him. Instead, as they ate, she told him about her job in a hotel beauty shop that stayed open late at night, what the work was like, and how all kinds of women came in and out, blondes, redheads, and Spanish. Then she cut him a half of her ten-cent cake. Eat some more, son, she said. When they were finished eating, she got up and said, Now here, take this ten dollars and buy yourself some blue suede shoes. And next time, do not make the mistake of latching on to my pocketbook nor nobody else's, because shoes got by devilish ways will burn your feet. I got to get my rest now, but from here on in, son, I hope you will behave yourself. She led him down the hall to the front door and opened it. Good night. Behave yourself, boy, she said, looking out into the street as he went down the steps. The boy wanted to say something other than thank you, ma'am, to Mrs. Luella Bates Washington Jones. But although his lips moved, he couldn't even say that as he turned at the foot of the baron's stoop and looked up at the large woman in the doorway. Then she shut the door. That is the end. <laughs> oh, we can't end it here. <laughs> would you try one more for us, perhaps? That would well, be let's see if I can find another short one. Mm. Um, this, um, both of these stories are stories I've written within the last uh, two years. Um, there was quite a long period when I didn't write short stories. I suppose I was so busy working on plays and longer kinds of creative things that the short story form didn't have much time left for it, you see. Mm -hmm. But um, of late, I've written uh, perhaps a half a dozen short stories in the last two years, and this one is called Sorrow for a Midget. It's another story uh, laid in Harlem, and... Uh, there are 37 stories in all in this. 37 stories in the book, yes, mm -hmm. and a number of them are longer than these that I'm, mm -hmm. I'm reading now. Uh... This one is uh, told through the eyes of a hospital worker, and you uh, know we've all been reading about the hospital problems of low wages and poor staffs, you know. So this uh, young man was not really uh, dedicated to his work, but uh, he got this job in the hospital, and so he tells this story. No grown man works in a hospital if he can help it. The pay is too low. But I was broke, jobs hard to find, and the employment office sent me there that winter, right in the middle of Harlem. Work wasn't hard, just cleaning up the wards, serving meals off a rolling table, bullying around, pushing a mop, 
I didn't mind. I got plenty of rest. Got plenty to eat, too. It was a little special kind of hospital. There was three private rooms on my floor, and in one of them was a female midget. Miss Midget. A little lady who looked like a dried-up child to me. But they told me so that I wouldn't get scared of her that she was a midget. She had a pocketbook bigger than she was. It laid on a chair beside her bed. Generous, too. Nice, that little midget lady. She gave me a tip the first day I was there. But she was dying. The nurses told me Countess Midget was booked to die. And I'd never seen nobody die. Anyway, I hung around her. It was profitable. Take care of me good, she said. I pay as I go. I always did know how to get service. She opened her big fat pocketbook as big as she was and showed me a thick wad of bills. This gets it any time, anywhere, she said. It got it with me all right. I stuck by. Tips count up. That's how I know so much about what happened in them few days she was in that hospital room. Game as she could be, but booked to die. Not even penicillin can save her, the day nurse said. Not her. That was when penicillin was new. Of course, the undertakers that year was all complaining about penicillin. They used to come to the hospital looking for corpses. Business is bad, one undertaker told me. People don't die like they used to since this penicillin come in. Uh-uh. Springtime in the old days, you could always count on plenty of folks dying of pneumonia and such, going outdoors catching cold before it was warm enough and all. Funerals every other day we used to have then. Not no more. The doctors stick them with penicillin now, and they get well. Damn if they don't. Penicillin is bad for morticians. But that midget did not have pneumonia, neither a cold. She had went without an operation she needed too long. Now operations could do her no good. And what they put in the needle for her arm was not penicillin. It was something that did her no good either, just eased down the pain. It were kept locked up so young orderlies like me would not steal it and sell it to junkies. The nurses would not even tell me where it was locked up at. You know, I did not look too straight when I come in that hospital. They were short-handed, not having much help, so they would hire almost anybody for an orderly in a hospital in Harlem, even me. So I got the job. Right off, after that first day, I loved that midget. I said, little bitch, you're a game, kitty. I admire your spunk. Midget said, I dig this hospital jive. Them nurses ain't understandable. Nice, but don't understand. You're the only one in here, boy, I would ask to do me a favor. Fine, my son. You look like a baby to me, Midget. Where and when on earth did you get a son, I asked. Don't worry about that, said Countess Midget. I got him, and he's mine. I want him right now. He do not know I am in here sick. If he did, he would come, even were he ashamed of the way he looked. You find my son. She gave me twenty bucks for subway fare and taxi to go looking. I went and searched and found her son. Just like she had said he might be, he were ashamed to come to the hospital. He was not doing so well. Fact is... Her son was ragged as a buzzard, feeding on a Lenox Avenue carcass. But when I told him his mama was sick in the Maggie Butler Pavilion of the Sadie Henderson Hospital, he come. 
He got right up out of bed and left his girlfriend and come. My mama has not called me for a long, long time, he said. If she calls me now, like this boy says, he told his girl, wild horses could not hold me. Maybe I'm going to see my mama, he said. I did not know you even had a mama, whined the sleepy old broad in the bed, looking as if she did not much care. Lots of things you do not know about this, Joe, said the cat to the broad. He got up and dressed and went with me quick. That little bitty woman, I asked him in the street, is she your mama? Damn right she's my mama, said the guy, who was near six feet tall, big, heavy set, black and ragged. No warm coat on. I thought I was beat, but he was the most. I could tell he had been gone to the dogs, long gone. Still, he was a young man. From him, I took a lesson. I will never get this far down, I said to myself. No, not ever get this far down and out. Is she very low sick, he asked about his mama. Real sick? Man, I don't know, I said. She has sunk way down in bed, and the sign on the door says, No visitors. Then how am I going to get in? Relatives is not visitors, I said. Besides, I know the nurses. Right now is not even visiting hours. Too early. But come with me. You'll get in. I felt sorry for a guy with a mama who was a midget who was dying in the hospital. A midget laying dying. Had she been my mama, I guess I would have wanted to be there, though, in spite of the fact she was a midget. I couldn't help wondering how could she be so small and have this great big son. Who was his papa? And how could his papa have had her? Well, anyhow, I took him in to see the little countess in that big high hospital bed, so dark and small, in that white, white room, in that white bed. They had just given his mama a needle, so she were not right bright. But when she saw her son, her little old wrinkled face lighted up, her little old tiny matchstick arms went almost around his neck, and she hollered, My baby! real loud. My precious baby son! My son! Mama, he almost cried, I have not been a good son to you. You have been my only son, she said. The nurse hit me. Let's get out of here and leave him alone. So the nurse and I went out and left him alone. We left him alone for a long time until he left. That afternoon, that midget died. Her son couldn't hardly have more than gotten back home when I had to go after him again. I asked him on the way back to the hospital this time, was he honest to God, sure enough, her son? He shook his head, no. That is when I felt most sorry for that midget when I heard him say no. He explained to me that he was just a took-in son, one she had sort of adopted when he was near about a baby, because he had no father and no mother, and she had no son. But she wanted people to think she had a son. She was just his midget mama, that's all. He never had no real mama that he knew. But this little tiny midget raised him as best she could, being mostly off in sideshows and carnivals the biggest part of the time, she boarded him out somewhere in school in the country. When he got teenage and come back to Harlem, he went right straight to the dogs. But she loved him, and he loved her. When he found out about 5.30 
p.m. that afternoon that she had died, that big old ragged, no-good, make-believe son of hers cried like a child. Oh, don't close the book now. Can we have another sh- little short one? Well, I don't have any more real, real short ones. The others are rather long, I think, too. Wonderful. You know, Something in Common sounds like a great title for a play as well. And you've written some wonderful plays, uh, Tambourines to Glory. Yes. Now, uh, uh, Simply Heavenly, certainly. Simply is. Heavenly had quite a little run on Broadway, you know. Mm-hmm. Soul Gone Home. And the lyrics for Street Scene. <laughs> Which is going to be done. Which is being done now at the now, Lincoln, Center Lincoln Center as a part of the opera repertoire, yes. Have you thought of doing something with something in common, or is it too early yet? Mm, to tell the truth, I hadn't thought of... Because <laughs> it sounds... Uh, of uh, using these stories for plays. Uh, they do have a rather, I guess what you might call a common theme running through a number of them. and so They the have something to, in common. <laughs> yes, it's have to show that, <laughs> that practically all human beings, white, colored, whatever race they may be, or whatever social stratification they may come from, uh, have something in common. I'd like to ask something about uh, you fight for freedom, which is... Uh, has The won story a, of the NAACP. Yes, which mm-hmm. has won a great deal of acclaim. This is out now. It's out, and it's been out for several months, and it's about a very timely subject. It's about the integration struggle and the background to the current... Uh, problems in the South, and it uh, encompasses really the whole history of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, which is the largest and leading Negro organization in the country, or Negro and white, it's really interracial Mm -hmm, organization, uh, attempting to straighten out our democratic problems in reference to race. And, of course, as you know, very great progress has been made in the last decade, uh, on the legal front, almost all of this progress has been due to the National Association, the NAACP, because mm-hmm. it was their lawyers, their legal staff, their planning that uh, brought about the Supreme Court decisions, you know, that opened up these schools to all, that brought about the uh, end of restrictive covenants, mm-hmm. again, through legal decisions. And uh, many people do not realize that much of this progress in this area of civil rights benefits not only the Negro people, but benefits many other minorities as well. For example, in housing, uh, right here in in New York, in Brooklyn, in fact, uh, there were housing cases where Armenian families were not permitted to rent apartments in certain localities. Even Italians sometimes, uh, there are neighborhoods that refuse to rent or sell to them, and the Jewish people, of course, have had many problems in that regard, uh, not so much in the New York area as in Florida and some parts of our of our South. Uh, neighborhoods have signs that I've seen myself restricted, and those signs were not... In restric- Florida. Yes, they were not against mm-hmm. Negroes. You see uh, many signs colored, not admitted, and so on in the mm-hmm. South, but the restricted signs, when I first saw them, I said, oh, what do they mean? Mm-hmm. And they said, oh, that means uh, no Jewish people mm-hmm. here. And, of course, when the uh, Supreme Court ruled such housing covenants and and plans uh, to restrict people to ghetto areas were illegal, it was a victory for many other peoples than the Negroes, you know? Mm-hmm. People who took part in the legal planning, the 
lynching investigations back in the old days when we had around 1918, 1920, almost a lynching a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was one year in which there were were, were more than uh, 52 lynchings, one every week. And uh, many of the lynchings were by burnings. Uh, young people nowadays uh, who didn't live through that period don't remember that uh, people were burned at the stake in the public square without trial. Human barbecues, really, you know. Uh, and so when you realize the kind of savagery that went on uh, 25 or 30 years ago, you can see that we have at least made some progress that uh, they don't uh, conduct lynchings anymore, at least not openly. Mississippi <laughs> or Texas and, and the uh, police dogs may tear your trousers off, but they don't well, they, chew they, you they, to death. They get, a, they get a little skin every once in a yes, while. Yes, they do. Yes. You did win the Spring on Medal for this, didn't you? The, uh, well, not specifically for that book. The Spring on Medal is given for I guess for one's overall achievement, but I happened to receive it mm-hmm. during the year in which that book was about to appear. That was recently, wasn't it? Uh, uh, was about it, uh, was two it? years ago, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. The book has been out now perhaps almost a year. Are you uh, are you an officer with the NAACP? Oh, no, I'm not. I'm not at all. Uh, it uh, was commissioned a uh-huh. book. I was asked to, to write it, and I very much... Uh, enjoyed writing it in a way. I mean, uh, I acquired much information myself that I did not have before. But I must say it was the most difficult uh, literary job that I've ever done in that it required so much research and so much reading and and uh, so much careful checking. It's a, it's a it's complete a fa- evaluation of Yes, it. and it's a factual book, you see. Mm-hmm. And I uh, am primarily really a poet and a fiction writer. And it's much easier to make something up out of your own head than it is to do a lot of research and have to work that hard to put it together. <laughs> well, aside from uh, uh, making things up out of your own head, uh, your characters certainly uh, bear a tremendous amount of uh, resemblance to a lot of people I have seen. <laughs> I just wonder, uh, where, do you, where do you find them? Well, they're not uh, copies of exact people, but they're composites oftentimes of people that I have known myself or certainly know about or... Sometimes I use uh, stories that I've heard as a basis for a fiction story, but changing and usually extending and elaborating on on the tale as I've heard it, you know? Mm. Well, I really can't wait to finish the uh, Something in Common. And uh, it's now on... It's now in paperback and hardcover Mm -hmm. and available, I believe, in most of the large paperback shops or bookshops around about, and uh, it has just recently come out, so I have not seen any reviews yet. I don't know what the critics will say about it, but I, like all authors, I hope they'll say something good. (laughs) Well, thank you very, very much. Uh, Perhaps we'll hear some simple stories at another time. Oh, I'd be delighted sometime to read some of them, too. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was a 1963 conversation between author Langston Hughes and Pacifica producer Eve Corey, right here on From the Vault. And that does it for this week's program. From the Vault is produced by the Pacifica Radio Archives and presented as part of the Pacifica Radio Archives Preservation and Access Project. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, an extensive interview with uh, Langston Hughes where he did readings of two short stories, um, a lot of uh, autobiographical information also included uh, in uh, that interview from 1963. You're listening to the past. Journal, 
Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast. This special edition of our program for Sunday, January 2nd, uh, 2022. We are broadcasting live uh, from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. We want to hear um, some poetry uh, from Langston Hughes uh, that he himself is reading. Here's one that champions the beauty of uh, African women. It's called Harlem Sweetie. Harlem Sweetie. Have you dug the spill of Sugar Hill? Cast your gims on this sepia thrill. Brown sugar lassie, caramel treat, honey gold baby sweet enough to eat. Peach skin girly, coffee and cream, chocolate darling out of a dream. Walnut tinted or cocoa brown, pomegranate lips pride of the town. Rich cream colored to plum tinted black, feminine sweetness in Harlem's no lack. Glow of the quince to blush of the rose, persimmon bronze to cinnamon toes, blackberry cordial, Virginia dare wine, all those sweet colors flavor Harlem of mine. Walnut or cocoa, let me repeat, caramel, brown sugar, a chocolate treat, molasses, taffy, coffee and cream, licorice, clove, cinnamon to a honey brown dream. Ginger, wine gold, persimmon, blackberry, all through the spectrum, Harlem girls vary. So if you want to know beauty's rainbow sweet thrill, stroll down luscious, delicious, fine Sugar Hill. That was uh, Langston Hughes, uh, sweetie. And uh, Langston Hughes was highly political, and uh, he was accused. Uh, by the U.S. government of being a communist. He was clearly sympathetic uh, to socialist causes. Uh, he supported the Soviet Union in their fight against fascism uh, during uh, the 1940s. And here is a poem entitled Good Morning Stalingrad uh, on the Battle of Stalingrad. And let's uh, listen. Good Morning Stalingrad. Good morning, Stalingrad. Lots of folks who don't like you had give you up for dead. But you ain't dead. Good morning, Stalingrad. Where I live down in Dixie, things is bad. But they're not so bad I still can't say, Good morning, Stalingrad. And I'm not so dumb I still don't know that as long as your red star lights the sky, we won't die. Good morning, Stalingrad. You're half a world away or more. But when your guns roar, they roar for me and for everybody who wants to be free. Good morning, Stalingrad. Some folks try to tell me down this way that you're our ally just for today. That may be so for those who want it so. But as for me... You're my ally until we all are free. Good morning, Stalingrad. When crooks and clansmen lift their heads and things is bad, I can look way across the sea and see where simple working folks like me lift their heads too, with gun in hand to drive the fascists from the land. You've stood between us well, Stalingrad. The folks who hate you had done give you up for dead. They were glad. But you ain't dead. 
And you won't be as long as I am you and you are me. For you have allies everywhere, all over the world who care. And they are with you more than just today. Listen, I don't own no radio. I can't send no messages through the air. But I reckon you can hear me anyhow, away off there. And I know you know I mean it when I say, maybe in a whisper to keep the clan away. Good morning, darling grass. I'm glad you ain't dead. Good morning, darling grass. Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, with his uh, classic. And uh, we'll take a break. Uh, we'll be back of our program for this week. Everything you can't do to me. 
Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, the music of the legendary Lenny, uh, who was born as uh, Lizzie Douglas on June 3rd of 1897. Uh, she made her transition on August 6th of uh, 1973. Uh, she was a blues guitarist, vocalist, songwriter, whose recording career lasted uh, for over three decades, recorded uh, around 200 songs. Some of the best known being Bumblebee, Nothing in Rambling, and Me and My Chauffeur Blues. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast, this special edition of our program. Right now we're going to look at uh, another literary figure uh, of the 20th century, and that is James Baldwin, uh, the novelist, essayist, playwright, uh, public intellectual, uh, let's listen in uh, to uh, James Baldwin in a contribution that was made in the Bay Area of California in 1963. Let's listen in. San Francisco? Yeah. Oh, man, I'm going to tell you about San Francisco. <laughs> San Francisco ain't did anything. I mean, ever since I got out of high school, I had a couple of jobs. I worked at a couple of hat companies and uh, warehouses. I mean, after a while, they say... Uh, well, uh, I guess we're going to lay you off for a couple of weeks, you know. All right, they talk about the South. The South is not half as bad as San Francisco. You want me to tell you about San Francisco? I'll tell you about San Francisco. The white man, he's not hes not taking advantage of you out in public like they're doing down in Birmingham. But he's killing you with that pencil and paper, brother. When you go to look for a job, can you get a job? Can you get a job, Winkle? This is San Francisco American pretend does not exist. They think I'm making it up. National Educational Television presents Take This Hammer. Take this hammer. This is a film report on a visit to the city of San Francisco by the novelist, essayist, and playwright, James Baldwin. Mr. Baldwin's guide on this tour of the city is the executive director of Youth for Service, Orville Luster. You tell him I'm gone. You tell him I'm gone. The drive from the airport into any American city looks pretty much the same. You could be anywhere. But for James Baldwin, this similarity goes deeper. From the drive into San Francisco, Baldwin began talking about the increasing bitterness, demoralization, and despair of Negro youths in northern cities. And it was decided that we would explore the existence of such attitudes and conditions in the city of San Francisco, with its widely advertised liberal and cosmopolitan traditions. Baldwin also talked about his concept of dues paying, or living up to one's responsibilities, and commented that many northerners seem to feel that because they do not live in Mississippi, they are somehow paying their dues. I think the truth is that Everyone, on the one hand, is fundamentally capable of paying his dues. But no one pays his dues willingly. You know. And the white man, like the black man, like any other man on earth, can pay his dues if he realizes that that's what he's got to do. As long as you think there's some way to get through life without paying your dues, you're going to be bankrupt. Because the bill has come in. It's not coming in. It is in. 
And the great question now is precisely what we've got in the bank. This, of course, is everything we think we have. Everything. And Birmingham is an incident, you know, which may become a shrine. What is really crucial is whether or not the country, the people in the country, the citizenry, are able to recognize that there is no moral distance, no moral distance, which is to say no distance, between the facts of life in San Francisco and the facts of life in Birmingham. One's got to call it, you know, one's got to tell it like it is. And that's where it's at. question I have to ask myself all the time. What precisely do you say to a Negro kid um, to um, invest him with a morale 
which the country um, is determined he shan't have, or to spell that more, more specifically, when dealing with a, with a Negro kid and trying to insist that he know that he can do anything he wants to do, how do you make him believe it? That's a difficult question. I think that, uh, that one of the main things that we have to uh, 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 make him believe you know, they say everybody could be the president of the United States, <laughs> and, then, and then, uh, then uh, this boy grows uh, up and he comes up, uh, uh, by the time he gets 14 or 50 years old, he begins to find out that, uh, that uh, this, this is not true, and to make him uh, face, be able to face what's coming to him in the future. He's going to be a Negro president in this country. There never will be any president in this country. Why do you say that? You we can't get jobs. How are we going to be a president? Got it. But I want you to think about this. There will be any president of this country. But it will not be the country that we, that we are sitting in now. But if you say to yourself, there never will be any president of this country, then what you're doing is agreeing with white people who say you are inferior. It's not important, really, you know, whether or not there's a Negro president. I mean, in that way. What's important is that you should realize that you can become, a, you can become the president. There's nothing anybody, anybody can do that you can't do. Well, the truth is that to get, the, to get I, don't, I don't think this is an exaggeration, but I think the truth still is that even to get the, remote, the most meager opportunity, you've got to be at least five times as good as anybody else around. Five times as good, not only at the job, but... This is what is so dangerous, I think. You have to have a certain... The boys that I grew up with, I grew up in the streets in Harlem. And of the survivors, what marks all the survivors, is a certain ruthlessness, which was absolutely indispensable if one were going, if one were going to survive. I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. Don't have to work. Don't have to work for nobody. And I can make it. Think as we're talking about now. Their real problem is they cannot find in the country any any reason to accept anything the country says. And they're very young, so they can't find anything else either. And this is how they end up, for example, on the needle. It's a crime committed by one section of the population of the populace against another section of the populace. And it's a crime which really could destroy this country. What do you think about the police? I think they have a purpose, but then again the way some of these people do you sometimes when they pick you up and stop you. Well, like a couple of times we'd be downtown just walking around. They they look at you. If you look suspicious, they would just stop you. Like I was going to show one night, me and my wife, and we just happened to go around Market Street, and we seen this police car go by. All right, we could turn the corner. The next corner, they meet us and they stop us. All right, the show starts at 7:45. We were out there till nine o'clock. But then they didn't have no excuse to stop us, but they stopped us, searched the car, and called in, and this and that. And what was the purpose of that? We weren't doing anything wrong. Nobody was mad. 
Let me ask you one thing. What do police do when they get mad? What do the police do when they get mad? I mean, we ordinary citizens. When we get mad, we can do things to hurt people and rob and steal. What, what do they do when they get mad? Who do they take their steam off on? I think you know the answer to that question. Well, I couldn't answer that because the police has never bothered me in that way, but I read newspapers, and I've been living around here all my life, and I see things going on. Mm-hmm. Well, when a policeman gets mad, he's got a gun and he's got a club. Yeah. It's one thing that the difference in uh, San Francisco and Birmingham, it is that um, San Francisco is whitewashed. Yes, precisely. Yeah. In, in San Francisco, it's under the rug. Yeah. You know, and it hasn't hit the headlines yet. That's and everyone, right. everyone in San Francisco, every white person in San Francisco has been tend to have got a Negro problem. Everywhere I have been in this country, you talk to a white person who says race relations are excellent, and I get to find a single Negro in this country who agrees with that. And then if you ask that the Negro have a better opportunity, um, ask that the Negro be hired in a large uh, firm, they'll reach out and hire one, that's to shut your mouth. And put him in the window. Well, Mr. Baldwin, I'd like to also say that Hunter's point seems to me, in my opinion, in my, in my uh, way I'm looking at it, Hunter's point is just like being in Alabama right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, I feel that we don't, some of the ones that can't go down, uh, we, can, we can march on San Francisco for the black man, mm-hmm. uh, to help the black woman. We can do that here because it has been stated that until we work on the vet, San Francisco and other areas, uh, New York and all, Chicago and all around, that we can get something done. We can help our brothers in the in South. The house, yes. Those, uh, uh, the black people in Alabama are my people. Yes, yes. Primarily, I'm from Texas. Mm-hmm. But anywhere in the South, anywhere a Negro, a black man is involved, I'm there. Mm-hmm. I'm the mother of five kids, the mother of a nine-week-old baby. But if the time comes where I can't march here in San Francisco, I certainly will beg Barry a ticket to go to Alabama. Mm-hmm. And I am ready. I suppose that no, no one in San Francisco has any sense of what a dangerous area this is. And I think this is one of the real troubles is that the Negro has, in San Francisco, he, he doesn't really know his place because it hasn't been really spelled out. I mean, yeah. he's trying to... to, to find this place and it's so, you know, this is one of the problems, you know, I mean, what place is there for me, you know, he came out to escape, and then yeah. you, you, you keep trying to another prison. That's right, you know, you find yourself, in, and you find yourself facing the Pacific Ocean, you know, as yes. the place has the goal. Yes, yes, yes. You know, okay. now you can see this is, well, more residence, I mean, apartments, and so forth. Going down, it will soon be to Market Street. The great problem is how in the world one is going to invest these children with a new morale, with some sense of their own worth. Because the country isn't going to do it. The country won't do it. I suppose I'm going to say at the moment the country can't do it. It's going to be a sense of its own worth. We have no race in the We have no cuts. No flags? No. No cuts. I'm going to buy a Oh, Tell me what you mean. Huh? Tell me what you mean. What I mean. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm transplanted. I don't have nothing over here. No, no, no. 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 No, no,
police. I don't have anything. But a man. How long have you felt that way? How long have you felt that way? Since 1956. Since 1956. Yeah. Why did you feel that way? Huh? Why did you feel that way? Because I realized what a dog the white man was. How did you come to realize that? Uh, when he got started jumping on me and putting me in jail and everything. You know. Where did that happen? Well, yeah. right here in San Francisco, right here in California. Yeah. Wouldn't that? Tell me how it started. How it started? Yeah. What do you mean, how it started? Tell me about the first time you were arrested. The first time I was arrested? Yeah. Well, that was, oh, the first, that oh, was yeah. in 1948. That was in 1948? Yeah. What for? Well, I don't know what they call it, but I got caught in the bedroom with a little white girl. And, uh, <laughs> she was a juvenile. <laughs> Where was that? Oh, you know that in San Francisco. San Francisco. Yes. How old were you in 1948? Eight. What? Eight. You were eight years old. Yeah. You were eight years old, 1948. Yeah. You were caught in bed with a little white girl. Yeah. And you went to jail. Yeah. When you were eight. Yeah. In San Francisco. Yeah. Look, you learn from the world you live in, brother. This white man ain't teaching you nothing in this book, but what you want to know. You ain't gonna know nothing about the future. He's not even teaching me about the future of my well, people. What you going to school for then, dummy? We don't even have a country. I know that. Do we have a country? He said, you know, this is your country, which is not your country. What flag going on a black man's flag? We have no flag, brother. No all flag at all. Honey. People, people, we not going to get nothing. Not by sitting around here doing these city and demonstrations and nothing. People not going to do anything. Well, how are we going to do it? Huh? By about? violence. Violence. We well, uprising, having a revolution. But there were 20 million of us. 20 million. That's enough. Not, a, not, 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 not these days and not in those terms. Oh, it's enough. They're scattered. 48 states. 48 states get them together. How? How? Through Islam. What? The true religion, you know? Get all the people together. Get all to believe in one thing. And then they can't help but stick together. I mean, we can't stick together. Now half of us Christians, the other half Baptists, you know, some Jews Catholic. and all that. Now what mm -hmm. good is that going to do us? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you think the only thing we can do is, is get have, together. have an armed uprising? Really? Just put blood, you know, let everybody bleed a little bit. That's the only way we're going to get anything. What, did that, what did happened to the people in Birmingham? But Birmingham isn't over yet. Yeah, well, it's over. Oh, yeah, it's over. <laughs> it's over. It's over. They done sent in the state troopers, the federal. That's all over with now. People, they had a little old, you know, a little old show Sunday night, you know. That was the only thing they did. When they was marching around in them thousands and thousands, wasn't nothing happening. They got mad Sunday. Jumped on a few of them. Sent a few of them to the hospital. And then what happened? They said, we're going to give you what you want, huh? Yeah. That ain't nothing. Ain't gonna get nothing. Now the Negro teenager doesn't have any possibility as we sit here now, I mean as of this moment, this is not historical, does not have any possibility of accepting American history which say has no, no way of learning it. Because it has not been and it is not being taught. He has, there is no possibility for him begin, to begin to act on what we always like to think of as the American assumptions, you know, man's a man for all that and all that jazz. It isn't that he wouldn't. It's because there's no possibility of his doing so. Because the country intends to keep him in his place and still does. So the only way a Negro teenager can make it is to step outside that system. You know, to become in effect a criminal on whatever level. No, 
to become an operator, you know, like really to make it, or to turn to Malcolm X. They trying to tear down our homes, brother. And when, they, when the white man try to tear down your homes, then it's time for you to do something. But what can we do? We don't know anything about what's going on. I mean, we try to go to the meeting and things like that. We watch the television. We watch all this about Birmingham down there. Just like Malcolm X said yesterday on television. He said, the white man, he talk about uh, truth and uh, uh, this man, Mr. King, he down there talking about, uh, yeah, can we get some kind of, uh, can we get some kind of uh, cooperation? Can we get some kind of truth down there? Oh, what are they doing down there? They're not doing anything. He, I'm calling him a chump, just like Malcolm X called him. He's a chump, and, a, and a, I think a black Muslim is right in some of his doings. And I think that a, a truth down there is impossible. It's utterly impossible. It's fantastic, and it's unbelievable. Wait, 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 wait. Wait, wait, let me tell you. Now, they're talking about better jobs. Jobs right here. You want to tell you what kind of job they're going to give us? They're going to let us tear down our own homes out here in Hunters Point. That's the job we're getting. And you know what they're going to pay us? Let me tell you what they're going to pay us. They're going to pay you $2 an hour. They're going to holler some kind of apprenticeship deal or something like that. Now, what else is that gaining you? Not gaining you a thing. You won't get anything. They'll help you tear, you'll tear down your own homes. It's a job temporarily. And then what you going to do? Where you going to live? You're not going to live anywhere. They're not even... In, in the process of trying to tell you where you're going to live, all they're talking about is tearing down Hunter's Point. Well, how long have you been in San Francisco? Well, I've been in San Francisco about 18 years, ever since I was about a year or two old. And you live around here, too? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 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 in a temporary housing? No, I said project. That's a temporary house. <laughs> 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 ain't no temporary house no more. They're tearing them down. That's you said. I ain't no more. There ain't gonna be no place when they get through. We're gonna be living out on the street. <laughs> make you feel bad? Yeah, make you feel bad. Won't be no place to go. We'd be living out here on streets and tents. Yeah. Where would you like to go if you could? What part of San Francisco would you like to go? I like to stay up here on top of the hill. You would? Uh, How long have you been living on top of the hill? Ever since I've been born. And this is part of our redevelopment also. What do you mean? You say redevelopment meaning? You mean well, removal of Negroes. Uh, yes, that's, <laughs> right, that's right. That's what you mean. <laughs> In other words, a lot of the Negroes who came because the Japanese were pushed out now are being pushed out. Now being pushed out themselves. That's right. In effect, San Francisco is reclaiming this, that's right. this property that's right. to build it up, which means Negroes have to go. That's right. And in Where are they going to go? Well, they're going out to Hunters Point, into the uh, Haight Ashby area, and also into Ocean mm -hmm. View, wherever they can find reasonable Rip. rents. Yeah. yeah. South of Market and all these other places, wherever they can find cheap rent. In other words, well, no, go, going from one ghetto to the other. Yes, yes. The, the Negro housing project, in effect. Yeah, as well as a few Caucasian staying here, you know. Uh-huh. Well, I know a lot about housing projects in New York. But I'm sure this doesn't differ at all. No. How's there some of the same problems, although the, the building, the exterior looks... Well, the exterior looks marvelous. It's the whole point. Yes. No. But I know what goes on inside. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm sure that in the housing project... I know the housing project in New York. The kids despise them, you know. Better, better housing in the ghetto is simply not, a, simply not possible. 
can create, you can build a few better plants, but you cannot do anything about the um, moral and psychological effects of being in the ghetto. This, this is the point. Everybody living in, in those housing projects just as endangered as ever before by all the things that get on me. By raising a kid in one of those housing projects, I would still have at the front door, or probably right next door in the housing project, all the things that I was trying to escape. And I mean such things as, I mean even from such things as, as dealing with insurance companies if I want fire insurance. You know, to the fact that um, in the playground, my boy and my girl would be exposed to, to, to the man who sells narcotics, for example, to a million forces which are inevitably set in motion when a people are despised. And you can't pretend that you're not despised if you are. You were saying yesterday that children can't be fooled. I could be fooled, you know, and be glad about, you know, having a through whatever it is, you know, smash my and terrorists are looking at a garage. But if my kid won't be. If my kids are being destroyed, it's fantastic about this. This is the ILW housing project, which will be interracial. The people who are renting it now, 70%. Our Caucasian, 30% uh, Negro. Mm -hmm. Then above that will be the Eichler homes and so forth. Eichler's always let Negroes buy if they had the money, although their apartments, I mean, their houses cost, say, from 22000 up to 32000 yeah. So naturally, this automatically eliminates yeah, right, right, right. a lot of people. I conclude that all this has something to do with money. The land has been reclaimed for money, and that the people are putting up the houses to make a profit. Well, it seems to me, I'm not attacking what's called a profit motive. There are some things more important than profits. I know that New York City has been turned into a desert, really, for the same reason that it's happening in San Francisco now. It's as though the society made the assumption and certainly acts on the assumption that to make money is more important than to have citizens. We're paying to our price for this. Because there's only what it's doing to Negro children, which is God knows bad enough. It's what it does to white children who grow up believing that it is more important to make a profit than it is to be a man. And that's where the society really operates. I don't care what society says. This is what it operates. These are the goals it sets. And these goals aren't worthy of a man. And adolescents know it. Oh, are you working on this? No, I'm not. But what, what has been some of the... What has been some of your problems you face as a Negro in San Francisco? Well, my main problem is uh, finding a job. Uh, yesterday I talked to a guy, uh, a white fellow that worked at a fitness station. He been out of service two months and he got two jobs. Mm -hmm. I've been here eight years and I worked about three steady jobs. And uh, I look every day. Like he said, he started out, he looked maybe once or twice a day and he worked at a fitness station and worked long shaman work. And he told me from his own mouth who was on top. He didn't come out and see it just like I'm going to see it. But he came out and told me that uh, you got to know somebody in San Francisco to get somewhere. And by knowing somebody, it's got to be somebody with authority. And nobody in San Francisco, no colored man, got no authority. You know what I mean? No, there are no Negro leaders in San Francisco. Did you feel well, that? There are a few. You? There are a few. Do you know any? No, I don't know any. But the ones that get up there... The ones that get up there, they don't want to help nobody. 
You know what has no one no one has ever helped you? No, nobody would have thought it. Besides my parole officer. Well, even the least damaged of those kids would have to put it as mildly as it can be put at the moment. We have to be a little sardonic. A little sardonic about the um the things he sees on television, what the president says, and um, all those movies about being a good American, and all that jazz. And you look at this, look over there, look up here, and he would despise the people, you know, who are able to have such a tremendous gap between their performance and their profession. But the more, but the more damaged kids would simply feel like blowing it up. Simply feel like blowing it up. Speaking only for myself, you know, I feel, I feel a little sardonic, I'm civilized, I think. But at the time in my life, and I would have felt just like, just like blowing it up. What's more crucial, what's more terrible is how, since one's in the main left alone, in terms of any help you can get from the country in this effort, how you get through to the least damaged kids. And how, and I don't know what I could say which would make any sense to them because in fact this does not make any sense now with all of these beautiful buildings now uh, they're going to be ringed in by hostile people just That's like right. we have in New York hostile and frightened people because right. they don't want they, they walk down the street and wonder why the first Negro boy they see looks, and looks at them as though he wants to kill them and if he gets a chance tries and it's because he can't go to Asia you know he can't it's because he can't he hasn't, there's no he has no ground to stand here. The cat said yesterday, I got no country, I got no flag. And it isn't because he was born paranoid that he said that. It's because the performance of the country for his 18 years on earth has proven that to him. Now how one manages to make these people, these blind people, begin to see. But there's anybody about that, that building. It has absolutely no foundation. And it really does not have any foundation. It's going to come down, one way or another. Either we will correct what's wrong, or it'll be corrected for us. And this is the... What was that? The St. Mary's Cathedral. Uh, this bomb building here. Yeah. I mean, not bomb, but I mean this uh, it looks fire. Like <laughs> that was a fire. But this is going to be torn down, but this will not be the site of the cathedral. They're going to change it. Really, it's horrible to look at. Oh, yeah. This was started one night. They had a, some of the kids were having a dance in the downstairs. Yeah. They didn't take it very long. They just gutted the whole thing. But as a result, the Catholic Church was able to raise $15 million to build another cathedral. <laughs> some people know how to make it. I was raised a Christian. No, my daddy and my mama were very religious. Many of the white Christians were not Christians because of the way they treated black people. And the Christian church in this country has never, in my experience, never as far as I know, been Christian. The record is much more than, is much more than shameful. The record, in, the record proves that as we stand here, as of this moment, the Christian church is bankrupt. There's not a single person I could turn to if I were trying to deal with one of those boys you were talking to yesterday. If I tried to tell him to go to church or even suggested the name of Jesus Christ, he spit in my face. And it's not because he doesn't like my face. 
It's because of, it's because of what, what Christians have done and do and now deny. All these churches are absolutely meaningless. They're almost blasphemous. If they don't mean it, they should, you know, they should uh, say so. Christianity has become a kind of social club. You have to have a membership card to get in. And black people can't have a membership card. Actually, Christianity at the moment looks rather like that church. <laughs> that shell. It's the God shops. I mean, what, what place? Oh, the God shops. I think the God shops, I know the God shops are there to console a whole lot of desperate people. What we can here call the failure of Christianity, really. Yeah. People in the God shops are there because it gives them the only, only one of the few places they can go to find any way of getting through their day. Dealing with the landlord and um, pawnbroker and the children and the whole horrible complex of forces which bear you down every day. One can no longer accept this whole notion of heaven later in a concentration camp here. Next to the Morning Star Missionary Baptist Church. Yes. This is one of the real little God shops. Why do you always thought that the Negro churches singing and dancing and praying? Why do they were really quite simple minded and happier than white, you know, than white people? What goes on in those God shops, you know? It's exactly the same thing that's going on now in the Muslim temple. But no one has ever, no one has ever made that connection. Off to our left, there's one Negro hotel. That's all. The only Negro hotel here? Yes. It's called the Booker T. Washington. Yes, naturally. <laughs> this, this is the street that all Negroes are born on. No. The street all Negroes have to survive. Booker T. Washington, the Baptist Church, and, and the mob. <laughs> mm -hmm. There's really a great history, you know, a great thing to be summed up in that if one could. Looking at this street now, the Booker T. Washington Hotel, I mean, what comes to your mind about uh, some type of music or some passage from the Bible that describes this? Sing the Lord's song in a strange land. I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure those cats across the street can dance like, you know, their white counterparts can. And the reason they can is because they, in a way, they must. It is... It's got to come out somehow. It's got to come out somehow. You know. And it, the pressure is great enough. It has to come out in a certain kind of... Negroes have great style. I think this is true, even if it sounds chauvinistic. And white people don't have much style. And one of the reasons the Negroes have a certain style is because they are aware of the conditions of their lives. They can't fool themselves about it. You know? And when a Negro laughs or tries to make love or, or eats or dances, it's a kind of total action. I don't mean this way white liberals are immediately going to think I mean it. I don't mean they're more, sim more sensual, more primitive, more the most spontaneous and all this um, ethnic jazz. I mean, the, I mean the, they, live a, they live on another level of experience, which doesn't allow them as much room, to, as much room to, for make-believe as white people have. Every American black man knows that there's something that American white men are in the grip of some extraordinary sexual paranoia. And they really are. What that comes from is 
probably a story for some other, no, some other time and place. In any case, such a long and terrible story, and so complicated that one couldn't begin to discuss it, except by examining, if you like, you know, such things. Well, we read Huckleberry Finn. We read William Faulkner. The range between black and white men in this country has always been the most extraordinary. At once, there's something real in it, and a terrifying invention in it. And it goes all the way back from the first time that any American started writing. And it has something to do with the Indians. If one could crack that nut, really, open that can of beans, if one could find, try to find out, and this is something white people have to do, Negroes can't do it, exactly what a Negro means to a white man. I don't mean what he means in terms of signing petitions and, you know, mastering picket signs and all that jazz. I mean what he really means. You know, why are you afraid of him? That's what it comes to. If one could begin to examine that, one might then begin to be able to deal with what is a really quite simple matter, relatively speaking. That is to say, if one could examine that, then the conundrum of the housing situation in San Francisco would not be a conundrum because it is based on that and all the lies Americans tell themselves and all the evasions that they give themselves are based on some fantastic escape partly from Europe and then from the Indian and now spectacularly from me it's insane well white liberals think of themselves as missionaries I don't kind of fight once with a fairly well-known white liberal. And I said in the course of my conversation, something of Mr. Charlie. This is a man who's been around for a long, long time. And he said, who's Mr. Charlie? And I was shocked that he didn't know, you know. And I told him who Mr. Charlie was. I said, you're Mr. Charlie. All white men are Mr. Charlie. But liberals have protected themselves against this level of experience because their, their principal motive so far been, so far been, as far as I can tell, a kind of alleviation and a, or a protection of their own consciences. They want to do something to help Negroes because it makes them feel better. But the price that they paid for this kind of effort is that they have never discovered who a Negro is. Not what, but who. Only a liberal, for example, could write the script of the defiant one. No Negro could, no. And only a liberal can be offended, as John Fisher at Harper's Magazine is offended, when, you know, when, a, when, when Negroes make some unmistakable indication that they're going to they don't want anymore. This is the record, you see. They really think that somehow the, the record of the Negro people's survival in this country is, is something on which they can congratulate themselves. And they don't know that for every one man who survived, 20 perished. And that whatever the Negroes managed to do here was done against tremendous, the tremendous opposition of the power structure. I don't mean there weren't some white people who managed, you know. But in the, in the generality, this is the way it's been. Do you feel that the white liberal a lot of times that when, it, when the, when the uh, things get real tough that he can escape? I mean, he can, so he can revert back tomorrow. Oh, and the white liberal, when things get tough, when things get tough, a, a white woman, the white woman liberal told me a few, week, a few weeks ago, she had had the, she had, had the bad luck to be sitting in the same room with about 20 students who were told, you know, telling like it is, staring down the there, and uh, she was one of the few white liberal in the, liberals in the room. And she was, and then what, the, what these kids were saying in effect was, we, you know, White people don't know enough about us to be able to help us. You know, white people say one thing and do another. And all of this is absolutely true. And she was terribly, terribly hurt. 
bitterly hurt. And she said, I'm sure I've done more for Negroes than, they, than they've ever done. And I got mad. And I said, that's exactly what they were saying. They don't want you to do anything for Negroes. No. They want you to do it for you. And she said, well, I'm not, really, I'm not willing to damage my child, she said. And I said, well, then forget it. After all, speaking for myself, you know, it's kind of insult. I, I, here I am, you know, as they, they say, no visible scars. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not isolated. I've got a family, you know, mm-hmm. and a history, and I've got nieces and nephews. Mm-hmm. I can't protect them, you know. They're, mm-hmm. in, t- they're in tremendous danger all, every hour that they live just because they're black, not because they're wicked, you know. And I mean this from the, you know, from the baby niece to the, to the oldest nephew, who's still only 16. Now, if this is the way that, if this is where they are, you know, and I know that every time I leave my nephew, I don't know what will happen, what will happen to him by the time I see him again, I mean not only inside, but physically. Mm-hmm. How can you expect me to take seriously somebody who says, I'm willing to fight for you, but I, but I can't afford to let my children get, you know, I can't afford to let my children be damaged. And furthermore, how can I take seriously somebody who doesn't realize that their children are being damaged by this, by the continuation of this, of the, of this system? You can't, you know, you can't serve, as they say, two masters. And, you know, the liberal can't be safe and, um, and heroic, too. In other words, he wanted to come full safe and he gets behind his safety zone. Yes, that's right. That's right. He's with you, but um, not when the going gets rough. And the, really, what I really mean at bottom is that he doesn't... If you can, if you can put it, think of it in those terms, you don't see the gravity of the situation. You don't see that, that we are living in a segregated society and, and this... There's terrible things to my child, and there's terrible things to your child, too. If you don't see that, then I don't think you see anything. And most liberals do not see that. One of the great American illusions, one of the great American necessities, is to believe that I, the poor benighted black man who may save elephant-ridden jungles of Africa, to whom they brought the Bible, He's still grateful for that. And people say, in many, many ways, not only in the South, all over this country, in effect, you should be grateful. Even, even slavery it released you from that. You're no longer dodging tepsy flies in some backward country. Well, I know this, and anyone who's ever tried to live knows this. So what do you say about somebody else, you know, anybody else? Reveals you. What I think of you as being is dictated by my own necessities, my own psychology, my own um, fears and desires. I'm not describing you when I talk about you. I'm describing me. Now here in this country we've got something called a nigger. It doesn't in such terms, I beg you to remark, exist in any other country in the world. We have invented the nigger. I didn't invent him. White people invented him. I've always known, I had to know by the time I was 17 years old, what you were describing was not me, and what you were afraid of was not me. It had to be something else. You had invented it, so it had to be something you were afraid of you invested me with. Now that's so. No matter what you've done to me, I can say to you this, and I mean it. 
I know you can't do any more, and I've got nothing to lose. And I know, and I've always known. No. And really always. That's part of the agony. I've always known that I'm not a nigger. But if I am not the nigger, and if it's true that your invention reveals you, then who is the nigger? I am not the victim here. I know one thing from another. I know I'm going to born and I'm going to be, you know, I was born, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And the only way you get through life is to know the worst things about it. I know that a person is more important than anything else. Anything else. I learned this because I've had to learn it. But you still think, I gather, that the nigger is necessary. Well, it's unnecessary to me, so it must be necessary to you. So I give you your problem back. You're the nigger, baby, it isn't me. Take This Hammer, filmed with James Baldwin in the spring of 1963, was produced for national educational television by the KQED Film Unit, San Francisco. This is NET, National Educational Television. Welcome back and uh, Take This Hammer, uh, featuring uh, James Baldwin from 1963 and San Francisco, California. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, the special worldwide uh, radio broadcast for Sunday, uh, January 2nd, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with our concluding segment for this program.
the lonely cry fades in the air. Welcome back. Uh, the music of the Supremes. Love is here and now you're gone. And uh, Detroit's own Supreme supergroup uh, from the 1960s. And uh, we're going to uh, move on to our concluding segment uh, for today. We're going to listen uh, to Africa Live from CGTN. Let's listen in. This is CGTN, China Global Television Network. I believe somebody is being held right now and they are being questioned. Massive fire causes severe damage to parts of South African Parliament in Cape Town. A magnitude 5.5 earthquake in the southwest of China injures 22 people. And West African regional bloc ECOWAS to meet over Mali's proposal to delay election by five years. Hello and welcome. You're watching Africa Live. We're coming to live from Nairobi. I'm Hannah Vivier. More stories making headlines. Tanzania Film Industry excited by the debut of the country's first ever movie on global streaming platform Netflix. And in your sport, we feature South Africa's Kirsten Thompson, who juggles her career as a Proteus cricketer and doctor. We begin this edition of Africa Live in South Africa, where firefighters battled for hours on Sunday to contain a fire at the Parliament buildings in Cape Town. A spokesperson for South Africa's police service has confirmed that a 51-year-old man has been taken in for questioning about the fire. Renee Delcarm reports. Authorities say the fire is believed to have started in the early hours of Sunday morning. Firefighters responded within minutes. But the blaze quickly spread from the old House of Assembly to the iconic National Assembly, where South Africa's first democratic president, Nelson Mandela, was elected in 1994. It's very sad because Parliament is the house of our democracy. Uh, this is where uh, the members of Parliament hold the executive to the account. This is where we have debates. We have the State of the Nation address here every year. And um, them lots of memories. There's a lot of history here. President Cyril Ramaphosa described the fire as devastating and disappointing, especially as it came just one day after the funeral of anti-apartheid hero Archbishop Emeritus Desmond Tutu. And to wake up to the devastating news of the burning down of uh, the National Assembly or Parliament. Uh, it's, it's just really a terrible setback, but notwithstanding the damage that has been caused to the National Assembly, 
the work of Parliament will carry on. The President said it appeared as though Parliament's sprinkler system had not worked as it was supposed to. He also confirmed that a suspect was being held and questioned in connection with the fire. I believe somebody <clears throat> is being held right now and they are being questioned. But we need to go a lot deeper, a lot deeper uh, into how this type of event can take place and what measures we will need to take going forward. But for now, I think we should be grateful that the National Assembly Parliament has not been raised to ashes and to the floor. Renard Alcom, CGTN, Cape Town, South Africa. Renee Delcarm is standing by outside the Parliament buildings in Cape Town, South Africa. She joins us live once again. Hi there, Renee. Thank you so much for bringing us all the latest that's happening with the Parliament building. Firefighters have been battling the inferno all day long, Renee. What's the status now? Well, yes, the fire started over 12 hours ago earlier this morning. We were told that firefighters got to the scene within 16 minutes of receiving the report about the fire. And the president has praised their bravery and hard work, saying if it had not been for their intervention and their quick response, we might have seen greater damage to more buildings in the parliamentary precinct. He said that we might have seen the National Assembly and the Old Assembly raised to the ground. Now, also today, the words we were hearing from government, uh, from people at parliament, was extensive, major, severe. That's the way they were describing the damage. And, you know, these buildings are historic. Some of the buildings, the first buildings were built in the 1880s. Others were built in the 1920s. And the more modern buildings, including the National Assembly, were built in the 1980s. So lots of history. There would be artifacts and documents that would have been destroyed not only by fire, but also water damage. So a very devastating day here in South Africa, here in Cape Town, where people have said this is a sad day for democracy in South Africa. Renee, you have touched on the extent of the damage. There have been reports that the roof had caved in. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, by all accounts, we, we, we heard that the fire is believed to have started in the old assembly building um, on the third floor where many uh, offices and a gymnasium were destroyed. And we were told later that the roof had been completely compromised. It has collapsed and is gone. The roof of the old assembly no longer, um, no longer in place. But we've also been told that the, the chamber where, where all the major meetings are held um, they are still inspecting that, so we're not sure about the damage to the chamber, but the roof is, is entirely gone. And as I said earlier, one of the more modern buildings is the National Assembly. And on the 10th of February, Parliament was due to convene to, to listen to the President giving an update of the achievements of our nation during this very difficult time in, in the last year. The State of the Nation Address was due to take place on the 10th of February in this building, the National Assembly behind me. That will obviously not be happening now. And the city of Cape Town, the mayor of Cape Town, has just made it known that the city would like to offer government the opportunity to go ahead with this historic 
an important moment in our history where we have to see how far we've come after COVID, etc., um, to give government the chance to go ahead with a State of the Nation address in the Cape Town City Hall and Grand Parade. So right now, we know that firefighters will be working through the night, everybody doing the, the utmost to find out what's happening with the investigation. As you said uh, earlier, and, and uh, as I said in my report, a 51-year-old man being questioned right now about his involvement in this fire. Renee, thank you so much for that update. Renee Delcom speaking to us from Cape Town, South Africa. Well, let's go to Yunnan province now in the southwest of China, where at least 22 people were injured after a magnitude 5.5 earthquake struck Langxian County in Lingjiang. Two people are in a serious condition. The hypocenter of the quake was located 10 kilometers below the surface. The fire brigade in Ninglang County sent four vehicles and 15 emergency personnel to investigate the disaster. A 60-member search and rescue team has also been assembled and dispatched. We'll bring you more updates as soon as they come in. Well, in Sudan, hundreds of pro-democracy protesters have rallied outside the presidential palace in Khartoum. It was a mass deployment of armed soldiers and mobile internet services were cut off on Sunday. Many of the demonstrators braved tear gas in protest. Sudanese want power to return to civilians following a military takeover. Authorities erected roadblocks from shipping, uh, with shipping containers blocking the Nile River bridges between the capital and outlying areas. This is the 12th round of major protests since the military's power grab in October of October, 20, October the 25th, at least 54 protesters have been killed in street violence since then, and that's according to medical sources. Let's head over to West Africa now, where West African regional body ECOWAS has announced that it will hold an extraordinary summit on Mali in the Ghanaian capital, Accra, on the January the 9th. The announcement follows a meeting held between Ghanaian President Nana Kufuado, who is the current head of ECOWAS, and visiting Mali's foreign minister, Abdullahi Diop. During the meeting, Diop proposed that Mali's transition back to democracy be extended by five years. He also invited the ECOWAS mediator for Mali to visit the country on January the 5th. West African leaders have threatened to impose additional sanctions against Mali. ECOWAS wants Mali's junta to make concrete progress towards holding democratic elections in February as promised. The bloc has already imposed sanctions on Malian leaders over the May 2021 coup. Well, meanwhile, the United States has cut Ethiopia, Mali and Guinea from a GOA trade preference program. The African Growth and Opportunity Act legislation provides sub-Saharan African nations with duty-free access to the U.S. In a statement by the U.S. Trade Representative's Office, the move has been informed by, quote, actions taken by each of the governments in violation of the AGOA statute, end quote. The decision by the U.S. follows a threat by President Joe Biden to cut out the three countries over alleged human rights violations and recent coups. Ethiopia's trade ministry says it is extremely disappointed by Washington's announcement, saying the move will reverse economic gains and unfairly impact and harm women and children. Well, U.S. President Joe Biden is to speak with his Ukrainian counterpart Volodymyr Zelensky on Sunday to affirm his support for Kiev as tensions grow with Russia. A White House official said that the leaders would discuss Russia's military buildup near Ukraine's border and they'll also review preparations for diplomatic efforts to calm the situation. 
On Thursday, Biden and Russian President Vladimir Putin exchanged warnings over Ukraine. The talks have set the stage for lower-level engagements that include a U.S.-Russia security meeting on January the 9th and the 10th. This will be followed by a Russia-NATO session on January the 12th and a broader conference including Moscow, Washington and other European countries a day later. The U.S. leaders say that he had told Putin that a move on the Ukraine would draw sanctions. I made it clear to the President Putin that he, uh, if he makes any more moves and goes into Ukraine, we will have severe sanctions. We will increase our, our presence in Europe with our NATO allies, and uh, it will have to be a heavy price to pay for it. Let's head over to France now, where the countdown to the French presidential election is on. All the major candidates are in full campaign mode, but there is one notable exception. The current president, Emmanuel Macron. He is widely expected to run for re-election, but Macron has still not declared his candidacy yet. Immigration security, climate change, and the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic will be the main themes of the campaign. Our correspondent Ross Cullen reports from Paris on the race so far. Striding towards a second term in office, Emmanuel Macron says he is focused on the job, but he seems to be in a campaigning mood, the clear favourite in early election polls. For politics professor Frédéric Matonti, he remains the one to beat. I think that very honestly, even if there are some difficulties, for example, if he's in the second round against an opponent from the right, that will be difficult. And because there are so many people who detest President Macron, right now I would say he does still have the greatest chance of winning. However, there are challenges coming at the incumbent president from all sides. Ultranationalist TV pundit Eric Zemmour's entry into the race energized both the hard right and his opponents. Zemmour has been on the offensive, branding the young President Macron a teenager who led France into a void. And France could have its first female leader. The far right Marine Le Pen made it into the runoff last time in 2017. She will hope to go one step further this time. There is also the mayor of Paris. The pro-environment Anna Dalgo is the 2022 candidate for the socialists, but she's not well known outside the capital, something she's trying to address, seen here at a rally in the southern city of Perpignan. I dream of a Republican left, of a popular left that changes lives, an ecological left that rises to the level of its historical mission. And, for the first time, the centre-right Republicans chose a woman as their candidate. Valérie Pécresse has had a surge in polls, and some see her as the top challenger to President Macron. And for the public, there are lots of potential presidents in the race. I think Eric Zemmour has emphasised important points like national identity and immigration, but I hope his voters rally behind the moderate right and Valérie Pécresse. There is a health crisis which is worrying, so in addition to uncertainty around the candidates and their ideas, it's harder and harder to project where we will be in five years' time. I think at the moment there are no particularly striking personalities in France, and I will probably vote for the least worst. 
The election will take place two years on from the first hard coronavirus lockdown in France, but the effects of the pandemic are still being felt, and Emmanuel Macron's management of the crisis will be scrutinised. Immigration, security, climate change, there are many other subjects that will be argued over on the campaign trail in 2022, but who will win the keys to the Elysee Palace, the French presidential office and residence, well, that is still very much up for debate. Ross Cullen, CGTN, Paris. Well, it's time now for us to take a short break and return more on Africa Live, including... Tunisia and Italy agreed to boost their efforts in tackling irregular migrant departures. Hey there, my name is Asa Tau, and there's three things you should know about me. I love food, I'm obsessed with history, and I travel whenever I can. Join me as I explore cultures through food, meet innovative chefs, and celebrate Africa's diversity. And welcome back. You're watching Africa Live. Well, in the meeting between Tunisian President Kais Sayed and Italian Minister of Foreign Affairs Luigi De Maio at Carthage Palace, they discussed ways of boosting bilateral cooperation to stem irregular migrant departures. Meanwhile, families of migrants who were lost at sea during irregular migration attempts have been protesting to demand the truth about the fate of their children. Anu Shuashi reports. Luigi Di Maio welcomed the level of bilateral cooperation in combating irregular migration. The Italian foreign minister also stressed his country's willingness to increase the quota of regular Tunisian migrants in Italy. We discussed the phenomenon of irregular migration and the flow of migrants. Italy welcomes Tunisia's work in this field. The cooperation will be further developed with Europe as well, to strengthen the anti-regular migration effort. Families of missing migrants rallied in Tunis, demanding truth about the fate of their relatives. Protesters believe that the traditional management of irregular migration has proved ineffective. Where are our children? We know that many migrants who are lost at sea were rescued and are still alive. The failed strategies of our state will only increase irregular migration. We have recorded thousands of cases from 2010 until the end of 2021. We want to know the fate of all missing migrants. Activists stress the need to devise new solutions to address the causes of irregular migration. They urge the authorities to promote regular migration, which guarantees the rights of immigrants. 
We want our children back. This is our message to the Tunisian and Italian authorities. The successive governments are responsible for irregular migration because they did not create job opportunities or financing for youths to launch their own businesses, while Europe imposes a strict visa system to stop regular migration. The kids had no choice but to risk their lives and reach Italian shores illegally. Over the last decade, Tunisian authorities prevented over 42,000 migrants from reaching the Italian coasts. More than 19,600 migrants were intercepted in 2021, accounting for 46% of the overall number of migrants intercepted in 10 years. The Tunisian Forum for Economic and Social Rights criticized where it called the country's total submission to the strong Italian and European pressure concerning the control of its coasts. The Forum says Tunisia limits the migrants' right to mobility in their own country as they are prevented from moving to coastal areas. Abdel Shawishi, CGTN, Tunis. Binti Swahili for Young Women has made history by being the first Tanzanian film to get on global streaming platform Netflix. Produced by local company Black Unicorn Studios, its widely anticipated release on the platform on the 7th of this month is expected to re revolutionize the country's film industry. CGN's Isaac Lukando has that story. Tanzania is not known for making movies, but Binti, a story about perseverance told through the lives of four women getting on streaming platform Netflix, might change that. They believed in the story, that it was a universal story that would be able to resonate um, with people from all across the globe. The film's producers, sisters Angela and Alinda Ruhinda, say local filmmakers have many good ideas, but realizing them has been challenging. Telling stories takes money and there are not a lot of um, opportunities to get the funding for a good quality film. Yeah. Yeah. More than 100 crew members and actors worked on the film. Many of them see bigger doors opening after getting on Netflix. Now Godliva is in this platform, so her, she has been upgraded. You need to pay her accordingly. You need to value her. The movie has also caught the attention of many film lovers in the country. This is my first time watching a Swahili movie that is Binti and it's impressing, amazing. I think I it will be amazing and uh, personally I cannot wait. The film's producers say because of Netflix's high standards, it took them a year to negotiate access to the platform's 214 million subscribers. Now that they're on it, the producers say more movies from Tanzania are in the pipeline. By getting a film on Netflix, Tanzania follows in the footsteps of countries like Nigeria, South Africa and Kenya, which have movies and series on the streaming platform. The country's filmmakers now hope to carve out a name for themselves in the world of filmmaking. Isaac Lukando, CGTN, Dar es Salaam. Sport news is coming up after the break, including... Kampala, Uganda's Cup. We meet South Africa's Kirsten Thompson, who juggles her career as a pro cricketer and a doctor. Africa Live. Find your voice. Welcome back.
Well, juggling two different careers is no easy feat. However, for South African cricketer Kirsten Thompson, keeping bowls in the air is what she does best. Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, the special uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, and that's going to uh, conclude uh program uh, for today. Uh, we want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to another edition of our program. If you'd like to have access to this program, just go to our website. That's at um, the Pan-African Radio Network, and uh, that's at... Uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash pan-african journal that's blogtalkradio.com forward slash pan-african journal and uh, if you'd like to uh, have access to the pan-african newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com that's panafricannews.blogspot.com We'll be closing out uh, with the music of uh, John Coltrane uh, from the 1958 album entitled Dial Africa. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.